This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A temporary village has popped up not far from Denver International Airport. And it's solar-powered, with small houses created by college students from around the country, including the University of Denver. This is a competition sponsored by the U.S. government. Hi, I'm Linda Silverman. I'm the director of the Solar Decathlon. I work for the U.S. Department of Energy. This weekend and next, you can tour these modular homes and meet the designers. Why is DOE investing in this decathlon? It's been going on since, I believe, 2002 or even earlier. When it first started, it was really a showcase event to show the possibilities of PV, photovoltaic uh, solar energy on houses. It's like solar panels. Solar panels, right. So because back then there really was very little um, solar installed in the United States and it was really kind of a new-ish technology. And so it was really about displaying solar and making people understand that that they could live in a solar-powered house. Silverman says as solar energy becomes more popular, the focus of the decathlon has changed. It's become even more of a building design competition because in order to have the solar-powered house, you need to have it be very efficient, right? So it makes it more cost-effective. So students are judged now on things like water use, but comfort's important too. I wanted to check out the home designed by DU. They teamed up with UC Berkeley in California. In the back of the home is a mass of green panels, and the walkway is slippery. Oh, it is wet. Yeah, so be careful here. Yeah. This, is their, this is their moss wall. It is just covered in, in moss on the back of this right. modular house, and it is misting right now. It's wet to keep it moist. Now, why a moss wall? What is this? What the students say is that they wanted to have an interesting feature on the back. It also um, cleans the air. And filters carbon. Plus, a water recycling system keeps the outdoor moss wall alive. This home is only about 800 square feet. So, uh, I want a tour. I'd love a tour. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Do we have to remove the shoes? No worries. Leaving my wet shoes on the front mat, I step inside with Brenton Krieger. He's a recent Berkeley graduate, and he leads me into the surprisingly airy space. Ten-foot high ceilings. Pretty nice. Um, It took two and a half years to make a reality. There are large sliding glass doors in the living room, plus a kitchen, bathroom, and two bedrooms with Murphy beds. Walls on tracks can be pushed out of the way. So you're creating a bigger living space. So our house was really designed for what we called a transitioning urban community. So we were thinking, you know, as the, the community goes from more suburban to more of a city space, it could go from a you know, a full family of four, family of five, to just, you know, let's say a couple living in there. So um, this can quickly, these spaces can quickly turn into um, a larger living room. Most of the solar homes here are standalone, but this one is designed to be stackable, creating small apartment buildings. The DU California team made sure to keep the units affordable, easy to construct, and suitable for the city or the suburbs. All that's important to decathlon director Linda Silverman. She says these homes are not simply thought experiments. Features from earlier competitions are now widely available, like smart thermostats. Back then, kids were creating um, these interactive displays that people could manipulate to understand their energy use. Um, We have several um, teams that have patents or have started companies because of some of the innovations that they had out. A lot of the smart home solutions are here. Look at the gallons, we're already way above, and the temperature should be huh? Yeah. Back at the DU Berkeley house, Brenton Krieger works with Denver grad Chris Lansinger on the home's plumbing system. They peer into a small shower. You were 120, 27. Good, man, our plumbing was great. 
it's about showing that yes you can do this stuff and you can you know be financially feasible it's not just oh we're going to make a cool house and it's going to be tight or whatever it's about can you do this can you make a real thing that people would want to actually use in the real world People are now living in homes from past solar decathlons, including one built by a CU Boulder team in 2002. It was sold off and now overlooks Golden. The DOE's Linda Silverman. They all have to tell us where they expect their house to go, and sometimes it changes, but there's all kinds of um, places that they will go. Some of them will be sold to a private party. Um, many of them will go back to their universities and serve as a living, living lab. And the DU Berkeley home will be donated to Denver's Habitat for Humanity. Solar energy is booming now, but there's uncertainty ahead. President Trump could soon place tariffs on Chinese-made panels coming to the U.S., and that worries many in the industry, who say tariffs could drive up prices and drive down demand. But Trump thinks it will help the industry. The Department of Energy's Silverman says the decathlon and solar power remain an important part of the agency's mission. I would say that this administration is committed to the all-of-the-above policy, and so they believe in all types of resources. But Obviously, I come from the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, so you deal with we're this all, all the time. about renewable energy. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Yeah, thanks for coming out. You can visit the Solar Decathlon Village near the 61st and Pena Rail Station out by DIA this weekend and next. And there are photos of the DU Berkeley Solar Home at cprnews.org. A municipal judge in Alamosa is himself in the hot seat, accused by the ACLU of Colorado of taking punishments for petty crimes further than the law allows. The ACLU released a report yesterday detailing their concerns with Judge Daniel Powell. CPR's Allison Sherry talked about the situation with host Anne-Marie Awad. Allison, what are the allegations the ACLU is making here? In general, that this judge is abusing his power, that he's violating constitutional rights by not allowing people to see attorneys before they go into the courtroom, by putting people in jail just because they have a debt on a fine or a fee that they can't pay on a traffic violation or something like that. And in one year, the report, according to the report, 258 people served an average of 13 days in jail each for really small things. I mean, city crimes are stuff like trespassing and traffic violations. And I think they would say that that's a problem. They have a lot of people in this report. It's not just numbers. There's a lot of anecdotes. A woman named Michelle Silva, she's an Alamosa resident. She had three traffic offenses in two years. Um, None of them were jail worthy, but there were $600 in fines that she couldn't pay because she's low income. And she ended up spending 14 days in jail for that. So who employs this judge? Who does he answer to? He's contracted. This is what happens in these small towns. A judge is contracted for a few days a month. He works six days a month in Alamosa. And a few days a month in Monta Vista. After that, he's just a private attorney. And they would be his boss, the city council, the mayor, and that's who he reports to. And have any of them responded to any of these allegations? I talked to one city councilman, said this is the first time he'd heard of it, and he wanted to read the report. Uh, The Alamosa city manager, her name is Heather Brooks. This is what she had to say. This isn't something that we're going to disregard. We're going to read it. We're going to review it. We're going to look at the data that, that we have on hand and present that to council in a very public format. And I also emailed and called Judge Powell. His name is Daniel Powell, and he did not respond to those requests. So of all the things that are listed in the report, what's the impact locally of this? How is this playing out on the ground? 
I think the largest impact is in the jail. They have ballooned to over 200% capacity because there's so many people in there serving time for small petty thefts and or they're serving time before they've even seen the judge. They might have gotten arrested for something like trespassing. They're spending time in there waiting for the judge to actually show up because, like I said, he only works six days a month. And there's actually a pretty big fight right now between the Alamosa County Sheriff and the judge. The sheriff wants some of these low-level people who've committed low-level crimes out of the jail. He thinks it's dangerous to have a jail at 200% capacity. Um, The Alamosa County commissioners, who would be the sheriff's boss, agreed with him, gave him the authority to start releasing people from jail at his discretion. The judge disagreed with that. The judge said he'd hold the sheriff in contempt of court if he started releasing people. So there's a big fight down there between the sheriff and the judge. I'm wondering, in regards to all these issues, is Alamosa unique or is this part of a broader problem? Uh, The ACLU would say that the overall issue is that municipal courts are operating sort of independently, like independent fiefdoms without any sort of oversight. There's no state oversight. There's nobody in the state watching this. You know, to look into this Alamosa issue, it took them hundreds of hours and going down there and listening to tapes. And I think they would say they don't have the, you know, resources to do this all of the time. And that's that's the bigger issue is that city and local courts need to have some sort of oversight. They also would say that they need to have some sort of independent public defender, you know, state court. If you're arrested and you end up in district court, you would be assigned a public defender if you don't have the money to hire your own attorney. These local courts don't have that, and they would act as an automatic watchdog. So what does the ACLU want to see done about all these issues? Well, they, I think, uh, could sue. They could sue the city of Alamosa on behalf of some defendants that they picked. I asked them if they were going to do that. They say a lawsuit's never off the table, but I think they wanted to try this sort of public shaming first, you know, calling this data out to his bosses in front of the media to see if that does anything. They've taken some of these bigger issues, like people serving time in jail for just having a debt, to the state legislature. The state legislature has passed some laws. That is against the law now because the ACLU has pushed this and passed legislative sessions. But I think they would say there's no real, there's no one really saying, looking at and seeing if these judges are following state law. And that's a problem that goes back to that oversight piece again. That's CPR's Allison Sherry. You can read more about the ACLU's report on Judge Daniel Powell at CPRnews.org. Some of Colorado's mountains saw over a foot of snow last weekend. It was a much earlier measurable snowfall than last year. And that's got a lot of people ready for ski season, including meteorologist Joel Gratz. His website, opensnow.com, is a regular bookmark for skiers and snowboarders who want to find the best powder. And Joel joins us from Boulder for a look at the winter ahead. Joel, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. We keep hearing this term La Nina. Uh, The National Weather Service expects La Nina conditions will come together in the Pacific. What could that look like in the mountains and along the Front Range of Colorado? Yep. La Nina or El Nino is one way that we think about forecasting three to six months out into the future. Uh And it's not a perfect way to think about it, but it's one uh, factor that we use. And La Nina, cooler than water or cooler than average water temperatures in the central Pacific Ocean, generally means storm tracks from the northwest uh, over kind of Washington, British Columbia, down over northern Colorado. And oftentimes that means that the central and northern mountains of Colorado can do very, very well and have average to above average snowfall. So that is one thing trending in the right direction for this upcoming winter. So so give us some uh, maybe ski resorts in the path if La Nina does come together. 
Sure. So um, all things being equal, and if uh, this upcoming La Nina is like previous La Ninas, we would think of resorts like Steamboat up in the north, resorts along I-70 like Vail, Beaver Creek, uh, Copper, A Basin, Arapaho Basin, Loveland, uh, Breckenridge, uh, down to Aspen. And then it, it's a little bit less certain uh, if the northern San Juan Mountains, Telluride, Silverton, and then over into the Sawatch, into Monarch, uh, can do well or not. But if it's a strong enough La Nina and we get just a little lucky, uh, almost all of the state could do very, very well. So you're saying even if La Nina develops, it's not kind of a specific thing. This will happen every single time. It could hit other places hard and leave some resorts kind of high and dry or... Yeah, so so unfortunately, uh, La Nina, El Nino, and all of the other factors are not one-to-one correlations with snowfall. They just go into the scheme of uh, possibly influencing the weather that we will see over the winter. So for La Nina, this northwestern storm track, if that storm track shifts just a hair west, all of the mountains of Colorado will do phenomenally well. And if it shifts just a hair east... Uh, then the eastern mountains might do a little bit better, and some of the mountains I just mentioned might not do as well. So even though La Nina is building and that gives us confidence that we could be average to above average uh, with snowfall this winter, it's just not a slam dunk. And uh, like most things in weather, and especially three to six months forecasts, it's very hard to know for sure. Now, I I remember last year you predicted Colorado would recover well from a dry fall, and you turned out to be right about that. So how do you think this upcoming season will compare to last winter's? Yeah, so so last winter we were dry through much of November, and people were, to use a technical term, freaking out uh, <laughs> about the lack of snowfall. Uh, but the statistics said last year that we would see uh, even dry start years uh, almost always, or at least two-thirds of the time, recover uh, to average or above average snowfall by the holidays. And that wound up being right. So for this year... Uh, unfortunately, this early season snow that we're seeing doesn't have much predictive uh, capacity to tell us what the rest of the year will look like. So while the storm track is already active, La Nina is building, which is a good indication, and some of the longer-range models do show and agree that La Nina will bring plenty of snow, I, <laughs> I don't have much confidence beyond saying some factors look good. I am hopeful, uh, but that's as much as we can say at this point. And, you know, of course, you said it's very difficult to predict at this point which days will be good ski days, especially months out. But when do you recommend people start planning their trips? Sure. Well, it, this this goes on a continuum. So if you have to plan around a trip for uh, a school break or a holiday from work, then obviously you don't have much flexibility. And in that case, I would say you have to shift your thinking uh, to, uh, that powder will just be an added bonus because you can't control it too much, right? Mm. And so you think about who you go with or doing some other activities like snowmobiling or horse-drawn sleigh rides or, or whatever it might be outside of skiing. And if it happens to snow a lot, that's a great bonus. But if you have some flexibility in your schedule, what I recommend is about 7 to 10 days away from your trip time. That's when you can start seeing a trend toward snowier than average, drier than average, cooler, warmer, something like that. And you can you can go toward those snowy and cooler periods. And then somewhere around three to five days before the storm, that's when we start having enough confidence that I tell people to, to kind of clear their schedules and to, to lock in where they might want to go. As we see every season, Arapahoe Basin, Loveland, they're, they're hoping to open in just a couple weeks here. They've already been making snow. Uh, what else should skiers and snowboarders keep in mind going to the season? Is there maybe another resort that's going to jump on board here and be, hey, we're going to open up here in a couple of weeks? 
Well, so so something to keep in mind, actually, this very early season with uh, with the early season snowfalls is that a lot of people like to hike uphill and earn their turns, and it's usually called alpine tur- touring. And this early in the season, when we see one to two feet of snow blanket the ski areas, a lot of people say, hey, I'm going to run up to the ski areas. I'm going to go hike uphill and, and make some turns. And just something to keep in mind is that there's a lot of early season maintenance going on. There's snowmaking. They're finishing up summer projects. And some resorts might be okay with allowing early season hiking, and some resorts might not want to do that. So it's best to call ahead. But there are backcountry areas, too, that if you're kind of jonesing for snow, and we do get some snow early this season, uh, that you can go to. But as the Colorado Avalanche Information Center would say, if there is enough snow to ride, there is enough snow to slide. So not to kind of let your guard down, even though it's early in October. Is that also called skinning or is that a different thing where people actually go uphill and ski uphill and things like that? That's exactly right. So skinning, you put these skins on the bottom of your skis. They stick to the bottom of your skis and kind of have um, hair, in a sense, synthetic hair that goes in one direction to allow your skin or your ski to go uphill, but it won't slide back downhill. So that allows you, in a sense, to hike uphill on your skis. Then you take those skins off the bottom of your skis and you get to ski down. And it's a wonderful way to get a workout and earn the turns that you're going to enjoy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with meteorologist Joel Gratz from OpenSnow.com about what we might expect this winter season. I read your snow report, and it looks like you're predicting snow could accumulate, could accumulate in Denver as early as this Monday. What's going on with that? Yeah, so this is a a cold early season storm, and it looks like the uh, deepest totals would be potentially double digits, six to ten plus inches in the foothills just west of Denver from uh, from Sunday night through Monday afternoon. But it's so going evergreen, to be cold enough. conifer, Bailey. Exactly. Yes, exactly right. It's going to be cold enough, though, that it should be close to freezing uh, down here in the Denver metro area, which means that snow could accumulate uh, on the grassy areas. And I say grassy because the sun angle is high enough now still in early October that once the sun's up, even though it's cloudy, once the sun is up, the roadways and paved areas will likely stay wet. But in just uh, the areas that are a little higher elevation or overpasses or early morning, late in the evening when it gets a little cooler, uh, there could be a few slick spots on the roads down here. So just a taste of what you say is to come. Uh, Joel, thanks for uh, being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Meteorologist Joel Gratz from OpenSnow.com. Outside Magazine once called him Snowstradamus. With snow in the mountains now, we talked about how this winter could shape up for Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. On a cold, quiet morning in 1960, a car blocked a wooden bridge in the foothills west of Denver. Within a few hours, detectives were investigating one of the most notorious crimes in Colorado history, the murder of Adolph Coors III, an heir to the Coors beer dynasty. The case drew screaming headlines, and the suspect's 10 Most Wanted poster was splashed across the U.S. and Canada. The crime has faded from most people's memories by now, but author Philip Jett brings it back in his new book, The Death of an Heir. Philip, welcome to Colorado Matters. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, why was this death such a big deal? Well, the Coors name for first. You know, I mean, everyone in Colorado knows the Coors family. Uh, they go back to 1873, I believe. 
And uh, not only was it a Colorado um, crime, but it became a national and international crime. Yeah, because, of course, I mean, everyone knew the Coors Brewery, right? And, and the family was rich, right? Every, <laughs> to say it bluntly, yes. <laughs> uh, the Coors Brewery, uh, the Coors family, the Coors name, the Coors money, the Coors power, yes. Everyone, if you didn't know Coors and you lived in Colorado, something was wrong. And J. Edgar Hoover even got involved here. He did. He did. Um, and most people know J. Edgar Hoover, the infamous director of the FBI for decades. Um, Ed Coors III's father, Ed Jr., uh, Adolph Jr., called J. Edgar Hoover personally and asked that he be involved. And uh, so that's something that most of us can't do. If uh, I was saying the other day, if my son was abducted, and I called the FBI, I would be told to punch one for English and two for Spanish. But, uh, yeah, he he asked Mr. Hoover to be involved, and he did. He sent, he sent more men, uh, um, FBI agents, on this case than had been involved since the Lindbergh kidnapping. So that shows you how big a deal it was. The Lindbergh baby kidnapping, yeah. Exactly. Now, you actually grew up in the South. You live in Nashville. You're a retired lawyer, now a full-time author. How did you learn about the Coors kidnapping here in Colorado? Uh, I get that question a lot. It's like, you know, this is, it's sort of like I've intruded on Colorado territory being in Nashville. But uh, I spend a lot of time in Colorado. I go out once or twice a year. I love it out there. I've done that for about 15 years and uh, snow ski and fish and hike. And uh, in 2010, I was in the Coors Brewery taking the tour. I think uh, a lot of listeners are familiar with that, I mm-hmm. hope. And it's a great facility. It's amazing what they're able to do there. And uh, when you, you're you almost finished, you get free beer. So that's that's an added plus. And for me, after the free beer, uh, there's, an, there's a hallway that leads out and um, – to exit and there's lots of photographs on the wall of uh, Coors and, and their business and uh, being the nerd that I am I noticed that Adolf Coors III became absent after a certain time period and, and that piqued my interest so I was staying at the Golden Hotel and went back and googled his name and, and discovered the story and then the second thing that I did was google Amazon to see if anybody had written about it and no one had. So that's when I decided to make the story my own. And that sent you on your way. Now, this book uh, goes very in-depth into the crime and the players uh, in this uh, tragedy. I want to talk a little bit about them right now. Uh, when all this happens, Adolf Kors, Ad Kors, is 42. He's chairman of the board and CEO of the brewery, which he runs along with his brothers Joe and Bill. But Ad isn't the hard-charging, cha- flash executive. You know, Tell me about him. Why is he different? Oh, you know, he's an interesting man. He's very accomplished, very bright guy. He seemed to be one of those kind of guys that can do anything. Um, and, you know, he was Adolf Coors III, and so he'd been labeled from birth as the one who was going to take over the business. And as he got older, that was something that, you know, he dutifully did, but that was not where his heart laid. And uh, he wanted to be a rancher. Um, and um, a couple years before his death, he bought a ranch south of Morrison and, um, you know, raised uh, cattle and quarter horses. 
and but continued to do his job but his dream was to at some point retire uh early and just uh ranch and, and so i, I love the fact that that he's allergic to beer as well allergic to beer yes uh, it's interesting isn't it you run a um beer you know one of the Dynasty. largest beer companies yeah. in the world and you're allergic to beer uh but that did prevent him he was the ceo and the chairman of the board but that did prevent him from being president which uh you know if you have to deal more with the uh brewing activities which they turned over to his brother bill who certainly was not allergic to beer now, tell us a little bit more about Coors itself. For people who may not know the history, it was founded by Ad's grandfather, the first Adolph Coors, and became huge in Colorado and around the country. It was. It's one of, you know, uh, we talk about capitalism in the U.S., and it's it kind of fades away. But uh, Adolph Coors was, you know, is a perfect example of someone. He came from Germany. I believe he lived in Chicago for a little bit trying to, you know, make ends meet, and he moved out to Colorado to start a a beer brewery, and this was 1873, which I think was only a couple years after, you know, the the territory had become a a state and um, or you know a territory. And he uh, started out with a partner and just you know worked his way and finally bought out his partner and you know and then did very well. And then, you know, one thing that I really respect the company, there are several reasons I respect the company, but one was they hit Prohibition, which, uh, you know, that was in 1916 in Colorado and lasted till 1930, as I recall. And, um, you know, they made it through. A lot of beer companies did not. And they made it through by, you know, sheer will. And they made porcelain products. They made near beer. They did a lot of things uh, to get by. And in you know, in the book, you'll see that um, the son of the founder, Ed Adolph Jr., uh, Prohibition stuck with him. He was always fearful that Prohibition might come back because it had been a very devastating time for them. You listen to Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with author Philip Jett about his new book, The Death of an Heir, about the murder of Adolph Coors III. Let's talk about um, the kidnapping and the murder uh, Ad lived on the ranch in the foothills outside Denver with his wife and four kids, and he was on his way to work at the brewery one morning, and he had an encounter with the guy who turns out to be a villain of the story. That's Joseph Corbett Jr. Tell us about him. Joseph Corbett Jr., interesting guy. Um, I felt no sympathy for him. I've had questions whether I was sympathetic toward him, and I just I say no, absolutely not. Uh, I'm sympathetic for what he could have been because he was a very bright man. Uh, his IQ was tested at 148, which puts him genius at the genius level. level. Yeah. yeah, so he's a very smart man. And he had gone to three years at, of college at the University of Washington back at a time where a lot of men didn't attend college uh, like they do now. Uh, and he was transferring to uh, Berkeley to go into pre-med and then things kind of went haywire with him. Um, as a lot of people said, he seemed to have snapped. And uh, in the book, you'll see various possibilities for why that happened. But he had murdered someone, and uh, he was only 21. And he picked up a hitchhiker, attempted to rob him, and killed him, and went to San Quentin. And after some time, transferred to a minimum security prison 
escaped, went to L.A., worked at a warehouse where someone told him, oh, you ought to go to Denver. Uh, So he went to Denver and lived in Denver uh, for five years and um, using an alias and working at a a paint company there and decided that, uh, you know, he didn't want to, uh, you know, um, work at minimum wage uh, and just, you know, was looking for some way to get rich. And he he considered bank robbery, he considered a lot of things and decided uh, he would kidnap someone. Well, if you're in Denver, the list is pretty short and uh, and Corus was at the top of the list. So Ad never shows up at the brewery the morning of his murder and eventually a milkman drives by and finds his car abandoned near a bridge and the police come on the scene. They find a blood splatter and a broken rail in the bridge. It's pretty clear that at this point, Ad Coors is badly hurt or he's dead, but there's a ransom note. What does the person ask for? What does he ask for? Yeah, there there was a scene at the bridge and there was a lot of evidence indicating that there had been a struggle and um, someone had been shot. Um, but uh, no one knew for sure how bad uh, badly they were hurt, and they weren't sure if it was a kidnapper or if it was Ad Coors himself. And then um, a ransom note shows up the following day that was sent by Joe Corbett uh, just hours after the attempted kidnapping, and he asked for $500,000, um, and he gave, you know, it's got to be in tens and twenties and that sort of thing, and and I uh, wish today that's worth about, it doesn't sound like a lot today, I mean, but at t- in today's dollars, that's about $5 million. And uh, he had given that figure a lot of thought. And, uh, you know, $500,000 weighs about 75 pounds. And so he was calculating, you know, he didn't want it to be too heavy. He didn't want the bundle to be too big. So, you know, he put his calculating mind to work and came up with $500,000. I want to point out here that you've created dialogue for the characters here. People talk to each other throughout the book, but most of these people are long dead. Why did you decide to write the book that way with actual dialogue between these people? Yes, I, you know, I did an exhaustive amount of research and, you know, it went over three years of research. And so I could have written a book as what I call straight nonfiction with footnotes and that sort of thing. Or I could have written it in narrative nonfiction form, which is what I chose. And the reason I did that was I wanted people to learn about the story, but also be entertained. And I know it's a tragedy and, and you know it's a terrible thing, but I wanted people to learn about it, but enjoy the the information presented to them. And so that's why I chose narrative nonfiction. And yeah, there's you know narrative nonfiction allows you to take liberties uh, where um, you know, in dialogue and setting scenes. And I say, you know, I could have, I had the FBI report, I could have given information straight out of the report in narrative form, but I, I found that would have been dry, at least in my opinion. So if two agents are in the FBI report saying they discovered this evidence on Turkey Creek Bridge in 1960 at night, rather than just saying that, I would set up a scene of having the two agents looking very FBI-ish and uh, the wind blowing, it's cold, and they're having a dialogue between them. And, yeah, I wasn't there. I don't know what they actually said, but I do know what they discovered. So I present the facts in the FBI report to the reader in what I think is a more enjoyable fashion. Now, uh, Corbett's eventually caught, 
and he goes on trial and the jury deliberates a really long time about this. Was there a chance he actually could have been acquitted in this in this murder? Oh, of course. Um, I believe there are 12 ballots taken and the first ballot was almost even. So you've got 12 jurors, you know, split. Uh, So that shows you, you know, how close it was. And, and, you know, uh, people would think it would be a slam dunk, but it wasn't because there was no direct evidence to pin Corbett to the crime. There was only circumstantial. And even the circumstantial was weak, I thought. But collectively, it built a strong case there. You know, they, they could not connect him with a typewriter that typed the note or paper that the note was written on. They had no gun. They had no bullets. Um, he was not seen the day of the crime. Uh, so, and there were no fingerprints. So those type of things that you rely heavily on when you were the district attorney was um, unavailable. So they had to rely on other evidence that in itself, you know, one by one might have seemed pretty weak, but you put it all together and built a strong case. And Corbett and, maintained uh, his innocence for the rest of his life, right? He did. He did. Uh, he didn't talk very much at all about the crime, and uh, he wouldn't give interviews. In fact, I, I saw a quote. Um, I think this was from 1996. Someone uh, attempted to interview him, and he said he didn't give interviews. It was not like he won the Nobel Peace Prize. So, um, But he did maintain his evidence, uh, uh, innocence during the, the trial and afterward. And he never admitted any guilt, never told anyone he did it, and, you know, he took that to his grave. Philip, thanks for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it very much. Philip Jett wrote The Death of an Heir, Adolf Kors III, and the Murder that Rocked an American Brewing Dynasty. He's a retired lawyer and lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Read an excerpt at cprnews.org. Look on just about any calendar, and you'll see Monday labeled Columbus Day. But the city of Denver doesn't recognize it. Instead, it's one of a growing number of cities to declare the second Monday in October Indigenous Peoples Day. Denver's designation in 2016 came after years of tension over this particular square on the calendar. Denver City Councilman Paul Lopez led the effort. He told my colleague Ryan Warner what the decision meant for Denver in an interview last October. First and foremost, you know, it it honors... uh, Denver's birth, right? I, when you look at uh, the history of Denver, too often, you know, it's either misrepresented or, or, or it will just misrepresented, right? I think when people think of uh, the founding of Denver, they think of settlers, you know, setting up camp at the uh, uh, Platte River and, and uh, Cherry Creek Confluence. And that uh, we owe to the encampments, the seasonal encampments of the Arapaho and Cheyenne people. And, you know, for, for us to do this, it, it honors that history, but also it, it creates a visibility and awareness of that history, which, like I said, goes far too misrepresented uh, in uh, in our history. Books. Misrepresented, in other words, people see the founding of Denver as related to, say, the gold rush or something yeah. like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. When it happened hundreds of years before that. This was a unanimous vote of the council, I believe. It was a unanimous vote, uh, 12 to 0 vote. So will it be a day off for employees? You know, in, in working with uh, the community and stakeholders, you know, they wanted to have a, a, a day off uh, for employees. But what it is, it's an, an official 
observance of Indigenous Peoples Day. And, you know, what, what folks really wanted to, to see was a day on and a, and a day on to uh, to recognize it and to, uh, you know, whether it being classrooms in our communities and symposiums and community space, you know, that's important. All right. But it won't be a day off for employees. It won't be a day off. And to be clear, Columbus Day is not. Is that right? For this, for city employees, never has been, yeah, and has never been an observed, as far as we could tell, yeah. never, never has been law in Denver, and that's the contrast with the state and the federal yeah. view of this. Yes. I wonder what about your experience or your district led mm-hmm. you to fight for this. Well, you know, I, I think it's something that's not necessarily a, a district centric. Um, this is something that's got to do with with the whole city and county of Denver, and in particular, and, and recognizing that history and making sure that you know one we are, we're aware of that you know misrepresentation that that happens far too often. But it's not necessarily something about a history book or or a past. It's also it's also present uh, challenges. It's also you know when, when you when you are aware of Indigenous you know People's Day and what that means to us and what that means to our history, you you also have to, you know, make sure you're addressing current, uh, the current situation. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of inequity. There's, uh, you know, there's gaps in, 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 you know, economic opportunity. There's gaps in health. There's ha- gaps in, in, in housing. And it, uh, you know, it, it requires and it prompts action, right? While he sailed under the Spanish flag, Christopher Columbus was Italian, and uh, the fact that Denver doesn't recognize Columbus Day made last week's vote doubly tough for some members of the city's Italian-American community. Mm -hmm. Rita Defrange is president of the Denver Columbus Day Parade Committee. That parade took place over the weekend. She says the council's decision, quote, added insult to injury. They didn't reach out to... The Italian community, they, they hadn't been publicized at all. It was sort of a uh, backdoor, if you will. And many of my compadres, the Italian-Americans, they're very, all very disappointed. They all want to know how this can happen. Was the process not publicized enough? We made it as public as possible. Uh, you know, we, uh, our meetings are public, our minutes are public, our announcements are public. And, you know, that, you know, with all due respect to, to Ms. Ms. Frange, I, I, I think, you know, how I'm not, does she speak for the entire Italian community? And I don't know is about this the, something the that entire, the, but she certainly speaks for some of it. No, I, I, I get that. And I know I, I get that. I get that frustration. But we have been absolutely public about it. There has been no backdoor or anything. Uh, and, and I'm a little confused because, you know, uh, first and foremost, we don't celebrate Columbus Day in Denver, and it's now Indigenous Peoples Day. Well, and, and Defrange's reaction is indicative of the tension that exists right. among groups representing Indigenous peoples right. and the Italian-American community. Mm-hmm. Why recognize one and not the other? Well, first of all, you know, the celebration, and, and, I, and I think of a quote from our brother Cesar Chavez, right, and and he was so eloquent in, in, in saying this, but and and I and I think of that quote in application to this this question and the celebration of one's own culture doesn't require the uh, uh, discon not discontent the uh, contempt or disrespect of another. And, and the y- same and yet, is true. But the for city is saying. But the city is saying yes to one and not to another. Well, no one's brought the question for the other. Plain and simple. Columbus Day has never been 
an official city holiday. And, you know, I know that the, the, the time I've been there, there's never been a bill to create it. There has never been a movement to create it. And, you know, on the contrary, you know, I think that we, we could all see that there is a, a huge international and national movement to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. Let's hear again from uh, Mr. Frange, the president, uh, again, of the Denver Columbus Day Parade Committee. Okay. She says the Italian-American community desires aren't very different from the Indigenous peoples, but that message was lost in the fight years ago. And there were a lot of heated discussions or, or firm discussions, and they didn't go anywhere. They, we didn't have the right people around the table. And I think it's about time that we get those people around the table and discuss this because, you know, we're all proud of our heritage. It doesn't matter who you are, European, Italian, Spanish. Everyone should be allowed, given their right, to celebrate their day. Do you think there needs to be a larger community discussion, or do you think that the discussion has happened? You know, there always needs to be community dialogue. Always. And there should always be room at the table for community dialogue. That's not something I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to. And, and here's, here's, here's the thing, if I, if I may say so. As I said before, the, you know, the celebration of one's own identity and, and, and with this and the celebration of Indigenous Peoples Day doesn't require the contempt or disrespect of the Italian-American community. It's, you know, it, it's meant to honor and recognize the founding of Denver. The founders of Denver, and, that, and that's something that's very important uh, to our city's history. And, you know, the, the, the way that this is framed as being something anti-Italian is not right. This is, this is not an, an, a, a, an, an attack on any way on Italian culture or history. If you really, really, it's, it's that culture, that history, the, the science brought forward by our Italian-American brothers and sisters, you know, with Americo Vespucci, who really actually was the gentleman who was responsible for, you know, navigating and, and charting the Americas for the first time. That's why our country's called America, or our continent anyway, you know, uh, that, that science, that culture, that's something that, that we, we all embrace. And this should in no way be... Uh, or, or repeated as some kind of conflict between between you know one culture or another. Why have it on the same day? That's something that is it's a big movement uh, throughout not just Denver or Colorado, but throughout the world, throughout the Americas. In South America, it has been Dia de la Dia de las Americas, and Mexico is Dia de la Raza or Dia the Day of the People, and you know, and here. You know, it's it's very important. It's it's an important mark in our history. Last session, a bill to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day was killed in the state legislature, uh, unanimously voted down in a bipartisan vote in the House. Mm-hmm. What does that say to you? Again, this contrast between the city and county in Denver of Denver and uh, the state and right. the federal government. Well, you know, Denver's politics are a little different from uh, from the states. You know, there's there's a lot more different stakeholders. There's a lot. There's a lot more land. Would you my, like to see it recognized by the state? Yeah, I think it should be. I think it should be because it's part of our state history as well, too. What does this vote mean to you personally? I wonder. Personally, I, I think it's an opportunity to really highlight, to really celebrate, and to really, to, to, at the end of the day, to recognize, um, uh, you know, the, the the contributions and the the history that is indigenous to Denver, and for far too long goes so misunderrepresented. 
right, in our textbooks, in our history. And that invisibility eliminates over generations. It eliminates that identity. It erases that culture. It erases that knowing, that 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 consciousness and what we, we want to be able to do is when folks read about Denver that it wasn't a city that was just founded on the heels of the gold rush that it was founded long before that and there were so you know that those encampments on uh, at the Platte River and, and and Cherry Creek confluence gave birth to this city and I think it's very important that we acknowledge that but it's also important that we address the, the modern issues, right? It's sad to be able to, to know that history, but yet see so, mu- so, many, uh, so many members of the indigenous uh, community suffering in poverty. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Denver City Councilman Paul Lopez speaking with Ryan Warner last year. Lopez sponsored a bill that officially made the second Monday of October Indigenous Peoples Day in Denver. Boulder is also on the growing list of cities to make that designation. Finally, today we share a memory of singer-songwriter Tom Petty, who died this week at age 66. This remembrance comes from one of our colleagues at CPR's Open Air, host Bruce Mitchell. She got to fulfill a dream. The first time I saw Tom Petty was in 2008. I decided I had to see him that year after his performance at Super Bowl 42. I loved him before then, but that halftime show blew me away. Lucky for me, it was announced a few weeks later that he'd be touring, with a stop in Denver. Petty and his band, the Heartbreakers, would headline a brand new event, the Mile High Music Festival. We arrived at Dick's Sporting Goods Park as the gates opened and staked out a spot. I only got up twice because I didn't want to lose my place, front row, center stage. After a slew of other acts, the sun set. I was really badly sunburned, but the place was packed. Tom Petty and the other heartbreakers walked on stage to enormous applause, and the opening chords of Listen to Her Heart resonated through the crowd. From then on out, it was a non-stop sing-along. His first hit, American Girl, an acoustic solo of Learning to Fly, and a still-new release back then, Saving Grace. I stood there mesmerized by the solo and running down a dream. I remember at one point, his lead guitarist, Mike Campbell, walked over to him and pointed above the crowd. Petty nodded and told us all, Mike and I were just admiring the full moon that came up over you. Colorado never fails to impress us. That drew huge applause, and he went into the opening song from Full Moon Fever, Free Fallen. I remember being blown away at how tight-knit the band was, how comfortable they were together, and how comfortable he made the audience feel. Like you were his friend, a part of the Heartbreakers. Bruce Mitchell from CPR's Open Air, remembering Tom Petty, who passed away this week at age 66. And that's our show. Thanks to audio engineer Shane Rumsey and director Michael Hughes, producers Marcel P. Pulcher and Alexander Kman. 
I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're standing in the shadows in the good girls. We're home with broken hearts. Come 